0: We're both neurologists and neuro ophthalmologists at the Royal Victorian Ionian Hospital in Melbourne. We're here at the NOSA meeting, the Neuro Ophthalmology Society of Australia a meeting, which has been held this year in 2019 in Melbourne, and we're taking the opportunity to talk to some of our excellent guest speakers that have contributed so much to the meeting. We're very fortunate to have Professor Graham Holder here with us today. Professor Holder is the Hong Leong Professor at the National University of Singapore and National University Hospital, and he's previously been the Director of Electrophysiology at Moorfields Hospital. Welcome, Professor Holder, and um, thank you for coming on to talk to us today. I wonder if um, I might get Annika to start with some questions about uh, electrophysiology.
1: Thank you. Um, thanks, Professor Holder, for joining us today. Um, I thought we would start with the, at the very, very beginning, um, knowing that a lot of the, our audience are actually neurology trainees, and although most of them would be familiar with visual evoked potential, very few would have even heard of an ERG, and I was wondering if you could just sort of briefly tell us what the difference is uh, in what, what is being recorded um, and how that's used to localize um, pathology in the visual system.
2: Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Visual potential arises at the cortex, so, as a measure of the way the images which are translated into a form to send to the brain by the eye are actually received by the brain. As such, it's a very sensitive measure of visual pathway function, but it can be affected by disorders affecting anywhere anterior to the cortex. So, although neurologists will be very familiar with the concept of a delayed VEP in optic nerve disease, delayed VEPs are not specific for optic nerve disease, they're very common in disease of the macula, and that can be associated with a completely normal
0: macular function,
2: uh, sorry, macular structure, as shown either by OCT or fundus altered imaging, the direct off the muscle. The role of electroretinography is detect, measure, analyze, quantify the electrical signals which can be generated by the retina in response to stimulation which is delivered to the eye in a controlled fashion. This could be the same stimulus that is used to evoke a VEP. So, the pattern VEP is a reversal checkboard stimulus where the black squares become white, white squares become black. So there's no change in luminance. That is usually displayed on a CRT, a television screen, and the patient fixates centrally on the center of the screen. So in other words they're using the macula to fixate and the response that is then recorded to multiple reverses of the stimulus because it's a small signal coming from the retina you need to use a computerized extraction process. That response is generated the macula prior to going back to the retina, So you measure the response of the retina to the same stimulus that is used to evoke the pattern VP, and that therefore enables an informed and meaningful interpretation of the pattern VEP. You can also use a full field or a luminance stimulus, and that will evoke a response from the mass retina, and that's called an electroretina agreement. This is useful in diseases of photoreceptor function or of inner retina function, but is unaffected if the disease is confined to the macula. So, the patne RG, which tests the function of the macula, there's another test called multifocal ERG, which also tests the macula, and both of those two should be used in conjunction with a full field RG accurately to assess the function of the retina as a whole, including
0: the peripheral retina. Thank you very much for that. Um, so, look, that, that really touches on an important point, which is the interpretation of the results that you get, which uh, obviously needs to be in the context. you mentioned that uh, you may get abnormalities in these tests uh, because of lesions of various parts of the pathway. Um, one of the indications for ordering electrophysiology is when we as clinicians are struggling to, to localise the lesion. Um, what do you think in terms of uh, an approach to this? Should we it should be a standard panel of testing, that includes ERG, or CT, or other tests as well? Or do you tend to select things more based on information?
2: Electrophysiology is complicated. It's expensive. It's time-consuming. And it's not easy. The role of the electrophysiology is to produce the electrical signals. So the first priority is that whoever does the interpretation must understand fully the origins of the signals, how to appropriately test particular parts of the visual pathway. It is then obviously of importance to relate those findings to the underlying pathophysiology of the disease. The purpose of the electrophysiology is to address a clinical question. So if that clinical question, for example, is loss of visual acuity, this could be an optic neuropathy, it could be a maculopathy, one has to assume that the basic optics of the eye have already been addressed and the patient hasn't got a refractive area or a cataract. But if that is the question, then a VEP will tell you whether the signal is are reaching the cortex in appropriate timing and with appropriate shape and appropriate size. Different pathologies will affect each of those factors. So, a demyelination or inflammatory optic neuropathy will usually produce a conduction delay. Non arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy will predominantly cause amplitude reduction and may show no conduction delay whatsoever. Macular disease, as we discussed briefly earlier on, will nearly always give delay. And Macular disease can occur in the context of generalized retinal dysfunction or as a localized macular. To place the data in clinical context is fundamental, like any other test in medicine. So one has to know the signs, the symptoms, family history, drug history, surgical history, etc., etc., so that the data can be appropriately interpreted. It is very important to consider the patient as a whole. And the difficulty sometimes comes from an interpretation point of view with people who are doing electrophysiology in their own patients. Because there is always a tendency then to make the electrophysiology fit the diagnosis. And that is the cardinal error. It's vitally important that the diagnosis is fitted to the electrophysiology. Because the electrophysiology... Gives you the objective functional data, which enables the diagnosis to be
1: made. Um, thank you for that. Um, I guess one of the biggest things that I noticed from your presentation, and it it makes me feel quite scared of all the possible things I may have missed. And mm-hmm. you know, you also realised uh, limitations that we have with the tests available to us sometimes. So with that in mind, I thought. It might be good to just explore what your approach would be if you had to differentiate a optic neuropathy from a maculopathy, even just outlining some of the clinical features that could be different and what sort of tests you would do to try and work out which one is which I'm using electrophysiology.
2: Thank you. Um, the symptoms, of course, are very similar. Both can have a colour vision deficit, central visual field loss, loss of visual acuity. Some would say you get a different type of scotoma, with the optic neuropathy having a negative scotoma, the macular disease having a positive scotoma. But possibly the only real symptoms in which they differ would be the distortions, the metamorphopsia, the mycoxia, that is more common in macular disease than with optic neuropathy. VEP would be of importance because you would need to know if there was conduction delay in the brain. If you suspect on uh, this is a straightforward optic neuropathy versus macular. Okay, um, but that would be non-specific. It would define the nature of the optic disease. But in order to determine whether it is indeed optic neuropathy, you would have to demonstrate using a pathology normally functioning macula. There are two main components in a pathology: the fifty component, the N ninety five component. We know that the N95 exclusively arises in the retinal ganglion cells. It can therefore be affected either in a retrograde fashion from an optic neuropathy. Uh, so you get retrograde degeneration to the ganglion cells, or as a primary disorder, such as in labor hereditary optic neuropathy, dominantly inherited optic atrophy related to R1 mutation. And there you would get a primary measure of the ganglion cells with the P50 component, although much of its origins lie in the ganglion cells, and we don't fully understand all the origins yet, is driven by the macular facial receptors. So the size of the P50 component will determine the function of the N95. Of course, the N95 component will be reduced in macular disease, secondary to that of P50. And one of the calculations that is always worth considering is the ratio between N95 and P50. If you have a maculopathy, that ratio should be preserved. If you have an optic neuropathy, then the mn 2 um, is reduced more than 50. Um,
1: that's really great. Does it, does it also depend on the acuity of when you see the person with the visual, fe- visual deficit? So would it be different with acute optic neuritis to a chronic optic neuritis?
2: There's two different questions there. There's a question in relation to the visual acuity. And there's the question about the stage of the disorder in optic Visual acuity clearly affects the ability of the patient to see the stimulus. Doing a pattern RG patient is tested binocular, so both eyes are tested at the same time. So if you've got one eye which has bad visual acuity, the other eye can maintain fixation and accommodation. So even if one eye has hand movements, vision, or even no light perception, if the other is capable of maintaining accurate fixation then a response from the macula can be recorded easily from that eye in a patient with optic nerve disease. The pattern RG is never extinguished in optic nerve disease. You lose spike and cell function completely and this can also be demonstrated in with blocking. You will never lose the pattern ERG completely in optic nerve disease. The concept of acuity in terms of optic neuritis again relates to the pathophysiology of the disease. When a patient has an acute attack of optic neuritis, the primary effect on the nerve is inflammation. And that inflammation causes nerve fiber edema, that causes conduction block, which causes visual acuity. The demyelination which occurs is secondary to the inflammatory insult. So the initial stage is primarily amplitude reduction in the VP, not the delay which is customarily associated with the disorder, because that's more of a chronic phenomenon. As the local nerve fibroid edema resolves, and that's when the pain goes, that's when gadolinium enhancement stops on the MRI if you use gadolinium, that's when you get recovery of the transmission you get post-inflammatory demyelination. That gives you conduction delay. So your VEP amplitude recovers, perhaps not fully, perhaps not fully. And then you get, at the same time, the development of the post-inflammatory demyelination and the classic delay VEP, which was first described by my Thank
0: you. Um, now, I was just wondering if I could ask you about another area where we uh, really rely on electrophysiology, which is um, the occult outer retinopathy. Mentioned in your talk uh, Azores as one example. Um, is there an approach you have to the, uh, the electrode? Again, it relates very much
2: to the symptoms. If you're thinking in a metazoa type disorder, they are often associated with positive phenomena, uh, or phenomena, I should say. The patient has a sudden onset of visual field defect. And within that field defect, they will often describe the presence of scintillation and sort of shimmering. Positive phenomenon and flashing within the area of field defect. That's not uncommon. Azure acute zone occult outer retinopathy first described by Tom Gass in 1988 I believe, um, is a source of enormous controversy. It is still not defined as a single entity. The Moorfield's view is that it's consequent upon one of the Related inflammatory type disorders, multiple sclerosis, and white dot syndrome, punctate endocoridopathy, multifocal endocoriditis, acute macular neural retinitis, acute idiopathic blind spot enlargement syndrome. And those can trigger a more generalized, presumably through an autoimmune mechanism, disorder which we call the The test protocols for anything which involves generalized retinal function must include an ERG because the ERG enables the function of the inner and outer remote to be separated, you know, enables the function of the ROS system and the cone system to be separated. It doesn't tell us about the macula, but we have the patent ERG for that. But in addition, patients with azure have a reduction in a test called an EOG or later oculogram. This is measured through patient making repetitive eye movements from side to side in a 30-degree excursion. During a period of 20 minutes dark adaptation and 15 minutes light adaptation, or approximately those times, you can do 15 minutes and 12 minutes, that's also fine. And the as the eye goes into dark adaptation, the cornea retinal standard potential reduces to a minimum, and the amplitude, which is then produced by fixed lateral eye movements, reduces to a minimum. That's known as the dark trough. And then as the background light is turned on, the patient was restored to photopic conditions. There's a progressive depolarization of the basal membrane of the RPE, the rindopinic epithelium, which then reaches a maximum after eight to ten minutes. And the ratio between the light peak, as it's called, and the dark trough, um, sometimes known as the Arden index, after my predecessor in Moorfields, Geoffrey Arden, who's had passed away this year, um, who first introduced the OG to clinical practice. And the... Light peak dark trap ratio, the light rise as it's called, depends on the integrity of the retinal pigment, but also the interaction between the rod face receptors and the RPE, And it is reduced in patients with Azure. Even if the rod ERG or the rod, rod system ERGs, when you do conventional electroretinography, is relatively normal, you can have marked reduction in the EOG light rise, and that gives you. An indication that you have primary dysfunction the level of the RPE, which is the outer retinal
1: Um, I think that that's fantastic, and I think we're almost out of time. So, just as a last thing, <laughs> um, I was just wondering for young players in this field, what would you think would be the top three things to for for um, our neurology and ophthalmology trainees to look out for uh, in terms of referring and using these tests, and and just sort of general sort of pitfalls that you've noticed over the years that that people get themselves into? (laughs)
0: That's (laughs) a really
2: difficult question because there are so many Um, booklets. One of the rules that I always tell people who are training with me, because these tests are done on machines and the machines are programmed and they're programmed by programs, they're not programmed by doctors. The machines themselves are not doctors, but they give you a list of numbers. And the first rule that I always say is never believe the numbers because the machine puts these small indicators called cursors on waveforms. The technician has the ability to change the position of the cursors and if you have a good technician who is very well trained they will do so. But the machine puts them there to start. Unless you when you are doing your interpretation have examined the waveform. I even know of some units where the doctors don't even see the waveforms, they only see the numbers produced. Unless you yourself have seen the waveforms and have confirmed what you think to be an accurate position of the cursors, don't believe anything. You must examine the traces. First one. Second rule, never forget the first one. (laughs) (laughs) That's easy. Other than that, what's really important is respect for training, listening to the technician. Because it's the technician who is fundamental to obtaining the data from the patient. And the other thing that's really important in relation to technicians is that when the ophthalmologist or the neurologist is with the patient during the initial consultation, they will be with the patient for maybe 10, 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes. The technicians with them for two hours, so the technician is in a position to obtain a history, which is often more detailed than that obtained by the primary consult. And always tra- train the technicians. Um, just anecdotally, we saw a patient just before I left Morfields, referred by an inherited retinal diseases expert. The patient was a twelve-year-old. There was a family history of retinal pigmentation, and the patient presented with night blindness. And when we did the full-field ERGs, the rod system responses were markedly reduced. The cone system, however, was pretty good. Now, the technician knew that if you have severe enough retinitis pigmentosa to give you almost no detectable rod function, you must have cone system involvement because retinitis pigmentosa is a rod cone dystrophy. The cones were good. The technician realised that this didn't fit. So he probed. He asked the family what was going on. The patient was autistic. It was determined by the technician that the diet that the patient was receiving was inadequate. He largely ate sticky buns and what have you, Virtually no vegetables, virtually no fruit. He also obtained a history of dry eyes, which the retinal specialist had not obtain. So of course the patient had vitamin A deficiency, and it's knowing the nature of the findings, knowing the origins of the signals that were able to detect very very poor rod function and non-existent, but still good cone function, and then realizing that that didn't correspond with what we understand of the of the disease. So it was easy for me to do the interpretation because the technician had obtained a history which the retina doctor was not in position of knowing. And then it was easy for the child to receive intramuscular Visemin A, which cured his night blindness and normalized his electrophysiology. The other pitfall, I suppose, comes down to bad interpretation. And it's often the case that, and forgive me for this, neurologists get a delay VEP and assume it means an optomorphism. And that, sadly, is very wrong. Right. A delay VEP merely means that there's some kind of interruption of the signal between the outside world and the cortex. It is not specific for obturning disease. Macular disease, refractive error, poor concentration can all give you delay VEP.
1: It's not specific. Um, thank you so much. I think that's incredibly valuable. And I think just as to close out, just to thank you for participating in this podcast and for your amazing contributions to this conference and other talks you've given in Melbourne already while you've been here. Um, And we hope to see you again in Melbourne really soon. Mm -hmm. Um, So thank you very much.